Amen. How are we doing today? I want to see a show of hands. How many of you uh, wear glasses or contacts? Holy smokes. That's like 90% of the, the room. Um, how many of you are uh, 45 or older and need reading glasses? <laughs> I, uh, I've been going to the eye doctor um, every year for years, and in the last few years, uh, she's been telling me that I'm, gonna, I'm going to need reading glasses. I'm going to need reading glasses. She keeps asking me, do you need reading glasses yet? I'm like, no, I, I really don't. Uh, finally, um, I still don't really need them, at least I'm not... <laughs> I'm not claiming that I do, but I did buy a pair, so um, I'm kind of getting to that point where it's just like I was reading my, a book the other day, and I had to hold it just a little bit further out, and uh, the, the thing is that we have these lenses where we're looking at the world through, okay, and it keeps things in focus, and you, you have an understanding that uh, without it, you would see a little bit differently. Well, um, a worldview is like a lens that you are seeing the world through. It's a philosophy, it's a theology, it's an understanding. Um, what we desire, okay, in this church uh, is to help you have a biblical worldview. We, we want to think biblically. It's one of our three core values, okay? We have three things that we say that we are all about all the time. Uh, we love Christ, we love others, and we think biblically, and this is what we want to help our community to do. We want to help our church to do. Um, but there's this uh, statistic or a, an article about worldviews uh, that was interesting to me. Um, the definition of worldview here, uh, this is from David Noble, says a worldview is the framework from which we view reality, make sense of life and the world. Okay, so we view reality, we make sense of life in the world. It's any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationship to God and the world. Did you catch all that? Um, and so I'm simplifying that. I'm saying it's a lens through which we see everything else. Our understanding. So... Um, as a Christian, we want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to understand God's Word and then view everything basically like this. I'm, I'm seeing the world through God's eyes and through His understanding, through His Word, through His, what He's revealed, what He's told us about Himself, what He's told us about the world, what He's told us about me. So what's concerning is that I was reading through this article and it was talking about how um, the big concern is that Barna did a, a poll, he did a, a survey to find out what is the, this, the level of uh, biblical worldview among Christians. So he determined uh, what is a born-again Christian by asking two questions, okay? He said, um, if you believe that you have asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and at some point, and that decision is still important to you today, okay, that was question number one. If you answered that, yes, then the next question was, uh, do you believe you're going to heaven based on what Jesus did for you and not on your own good work? If you could answer those two questions, then he puts you in the category of a born-again believer. Okay? He didn't use the word born-again believer to ask people if you think you are. He said, this is the criteria. If you have an, a relationship with Christ and you believe you're going to heaven because of what he did. Okay? And I was saying, that's, that's pretty good. 
um, out of those people that answered those two questions, yes. How many do you think, percentage-wise, zero to 100 um, percent, had a biblical worldview? You throw out some answers. What do you think? Five percent. That's 10, 15. You guys are really cynical <laughs> and really accurate because they found nine percent of born-again Christians, okay? This isn't just like their whole, you know, their whole uh, uh, category of everybody. This is just Christians. Nine percent of people who claim to know Christ and are going to heaven because of what Jesus did for them had a biblical worldview. Now, here's how they determined a biblical worldview. Barna defines biblical worldview as believing that absolute moral truth exists. So you have to answer all these questions, about six questions. You have to answer all of them, yes. Absolute moral truth exists. One, the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Okay, the Bible is to- totally accurate. It is, it is the Word of God. It is true. Uh, Satan is considered to be a real being and not merely symbolic. Okay, number three, a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or doing good works. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth and... God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. If you answered all those questions, yes, then Barna says you have a biblical worldview. And, I mean, those questions aren't radical, okay? I don't know where the, the big hiccup came with a lot of people who claim to be Christians that they, would, they disagreed with one of those points. I don't need to get into it. Here's the thing that you could do with any survey or statistic. You could change it. You could manipulate it. You could uh, remove a question. You could rework a question. You could try to get a better answer and try to you know, change your results, right? We could, we could figure out a way to get more people on that page. But the, the reality of 9% can answer yes to those questions confidently, it seems a little bit startling, doesn't it? I thought, okay, let's just reframe this a little bit. Let's look at it in just a little bit different way. Um, Let's say that uh, a biblical worldview that everybody's, what I'm going to say, is on the spectrum. Okay, so nobody, nobody, except for Jesus Christ in in all of world history, ever had a 100% on this spectrum. Okay, was completely without fail, without fault, without mistake, without any kind of hindrance, without any kind of question. Nobody except for Jesus was 100%. So that means that everybody else is, is on the spectrum somewhere in where they have a biblical worldview versus some other thing that affects the way that they see the world. Okay, Because you would have to know and understand and believe and apply everything in Scripture perfectly to have a 100%. Okay, you, you agree with what I'm saying here? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so here's what I began to think about was this issue of how consistent are we? Are we inconsistent? Are we, are we knowingly inconsistent? Are, where do we fall off on this biblical worldview thing? And there are so many different influences that affect um, our worldview, our, our understanding. You have a family that you grew up in. You know, I grew up in a household with six kids, okay, in a pastor's home in three different regions of America. We grew up, I was in uh, New England, 
in New Hampshire where I was born and raised for several years. I went to South Dakota, uh, over in, uh, way on the western side of South Dakota, and I grew up in central Illinois uh, for the rest of our, our growing up years. Um, so, you know, three different regions and a big family and a pastor's home and, and various different economic statuses, but usually middle class or less, right? And so that, that affects how I view the world to some degree. You know, you grew up in a home with different influences. You had parents who had different types of, of influence on you, whether they took you to church or didn't take you to church, whether they were, they were nominal Christians or not believers at all, or they raised you to be totally secular, or you had one sibling, you were, maybe you were abused or you were spoiled, or you had uh, all these different things that happened in your household. You grew up in public school or, or private school, or you went, you were homeschooled. All those things impact how you see the world, whether you grew up in rural America or an urban setting, or whether or not you... Uh, went to college and what kind of college you went to, what did you train in, what kind of job did you train for, what kind of people were surrounding you in, in various different settings, were you picked on, were you a jock, were you a nerd, did you like school, were you academic, were you, you know, all these different things that impact how you see the world. Did, did you go into the military, were you deployed, did you go into uh, some different uh, job that, that put you in public eye where you were up front or where you're dealing with you know, the, the customers when you were uh, doing all these things that, that you were trained in? Were you trained well? Did you have to learn on your own? Are you self-motivated? Are you somebody that needs to be prodded along? Your personality has some impact on this. Did you have a, a trauma in your life? Did you have something happen to you that, that impacted how you see things? You know, I've been in several car accidents. I was in a plane crash when I was a kid. Um, I, you know, I've survived all those things. I look at that like God was with me through that. But some people went through some difficult things and were injured or harmed in some way. Where why didn't God protect me from that? Why did I have to go through this? Why am I dealing with this this trauma from my past that's still affecting my future? I'm carrying all this baggage into my marriage because of these things. My parents were divorced. My parents were not divorced. I still have my parents together, and that impacts how I see marriage and see life. You have all these different things that influence you, experiences that you've had, and people, how they've acted towards you and how you've acted towards them and how those things change your mindset, right? It's not just, you know, we can see the world through the Bible. We have to see the world through the Bible with all those things in place. You get that? And... Here's what makes the difference. It's not all your past. It's not your experiences. It's not how you, how you were raised or the people that you were friends with or worked with. Or It's faith. My faith helps me to see my past and my future. And I can't see the world necessarily from your perspective because I didn't live your life and I don't have your understanding or, or your experiences. I don't know how you feel. I don't know why you feel the way that you do because of what you went through, okay? And, and you don't have, your, your understanding isn't really the same as mine. But we have a similar faith. And that faith helps us to interpret everything that we experience, no matter what it is. And what we're seeking is to grow in a more consistent biblical understanding of all those things, how it impacts our past and how it impacts our future.
So let's look at God's Word as we kind of unpack this a little bit. We're going to do this kind of in two parts. Um, this week we're, we're dealing with uh, John chapter 8. Uh, next week we're going to deal with uh, Satan's um, influence on uh, attacking the biblical worldview from Genesis 3 and, and Matthew chapter 4. Uh, but right now we're going to look at Jesus' uh, disagreement with the religious leaders of his day. And we're going to stand as we read God's Word, John 8. We're picking it up in the middle of a controversy. And like I said, this is between Jesus and religious leaders. These are people who know the Bible. These are people who understand Scripture, who are religious in their practice and their lifestyle, and they have a blindness to Jesus' words here. And so uh, we're right in the middle of this whole controversy. It says this, they answered him, Jesus, these are the, the religious leaders, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Which is interesting that they would claim that because that's the very thing that Jesus says about himself that they end up killing him for. Found that a little bit ironic. It says, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. That's pretty important. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you have invited us to have changed lives and changed minds, changed hearts. We see the world differently. We see the world through your eyes. We, we at least have that opportunity to grow in that. Lord, we pray that by a simple act of faith, Lord, we would become your children. We'd begin to hear from you, understand you, live for you, speak for you, uh, help others to do the same. And God, we thank you that you're so <laughs> patient, so patient, so gracious, Lord, to complete and continue the work that you started in us, Lord. You, you don't fail and you don't stop. Um, as often as we miss the mark and misunderstand and misapply and even sometimes contradict the things we say we believe, Lord, I, I, I pray that you would forgive us for that and I pray that you would help us to have the strength and the grace uh, to grow to change, to, to be different, to be more like your son, and to shed that light abroad, Lord, throughout this 
community throughout this world for your glory. Help us to live consistently with what we say we believe for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 8 um, begins, and this is a famous, if not one of the most famous stories in John, um, is the, the woman who is caught in adultery, brought to Jesus, and uh, the religious leaders are asking Jesus um, what should be done, okay? And because according to the law, she should be executed, and uh, this is Jesus confronting their worldview, okay? This, this is them having their, their eyes open to something different, which is that Jesus says, uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And we, we love that. We, we love this idea that Jesus is confronting them with a, a question that every single one of them have to answer for themselves. Have I sinned? Am I worthy? Am I righteous enough? Am, am I the one who should be able to judge this person? But here's the, the, where this story turns, okay? Because they all drop their rocks and walk away because they know that they are not worthy. Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. At the end of chapter 8, he's going to declare, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, And he's using that statement, I am. It's in Greek, it's ego, eimi. And it is the Greek translation of the Hebrew tetragrammatron. A big theological word. What that means is, it's the name of God that God gave to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3 when God met with Moses at the burning bush. Moses said, who should I say is sending me? And God says, I am who I am. It's, it's the name that he gives Moses to tell the Israelites who he is. Jesus declares that I am. He declares that he is God. In the first part of that, in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. The light is uh, symbolic within scripture of what? Truth. He is the truth. Why is he the truth? Because he is the exact representation of the nature and the character of God on the earth. Who is it that can judge this woman? Jesus can. And he's revealing that he is the Messiah through all these different things, that he is everything that the scripture is pointing to about who the Messiah would be, all the prophecy, all the law, all the, the, the religious requirements of perfection, Jesus fulfills that in his person, in his personality, in his goodness, in his words, everything that he does. He's fulfilling all of that. And here's what the reaction is from the religious leaders. We don't want you. We don't need you. We don't need a savior. We don't want a savior. We don't want to accept your ministry. They don't bother to try to understand if this is valid or not. They don't try to go do their homework and figure out from Scripture, is this really the person who's going to be the Messiah? Will he be this way? They reject him out of hand on sight. We don't want you. We don't need a Savior. We're comfortable with our religion. We're comfortable with our rules, our regulations, the, the sacrifices, the purity laws, the, the kosher laws. We're good with all that. We feel comfortable in that. We don't want that to change. We don't need it to change. We don't need what you're offering. Even though everything is pointing to the reality that you are the person that Scripture says you would be in everything in your life, he says, even if you can't accept my words, at least 
Look at the miracles. Just let the miracles be the evidence. And they wouldn't do it. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. And here's the thing that we have to kind of understand in all of this. In our day right now, I, I had such a hard time wrapping my mind around this. It just seems so foreign and strange that they would reject Jesus like this. But here's what I found. Uh, there were other um, surveys taken uh, of our culture today, and one of them had to do with um, heaven. What percentage of people do you think believe that they are going to heaven? 99%. Out of everybody. This isn't born-again Christians we're talking about. This is everybody. Everyone surveyed. The, the conclusion was 99% of people believe that they are going to heaven. However they're going to get there or whatever that means, or whatever heaven is, or 99%. And so when you believe that you're going to heaven... Do you feel like you need a Savior? Do you feel like you need a biblical worldview? Do you feel like you need to change? Do you feel like you need to add anything to your life, to take anything away? Do you think that anything has to be different if you already believe that you're going to heaven? This is why in our day, in our age, our culture right now, I think the gospel has such a hard time taking root in a lot of people's lives because people don't see the validity of it. The need for it. What, what do we... I don't, I don't need that. I'm already going to heaven. And how offensive it is to most people if you were to say that you're not going to heaven. I mean, have you ever told somebody that? Just, just do that. Go to work <laughs> tomorrow and... Hey, Bob, you know what? Um, you're going to hell. <laughs> I mean, we don't tend to do that, do we? Because there's a couple of reasons. One is that we don't really know because, I mean, their relationship with God is something that is unseen. I, I can only see the fruit of, of it. I don't know the actual reality of it. Uh, but the other thing is that it's so hyper-offensive because what is that doing? It's putting you in that place of judge. Like, I'm going to judge you and tell you where you're going. I don't have control of that. I'm not in charge of that. How could I tell you that? But let me say this. How many people do you know that you are concerned that they are actually going to hell? That you would never dare to tell them that. You would never say that. But in the back of your mind, you look at their life, what they say they believe, what they do, and you say, I have no confidence that they know the Lord and are going to heaven. What would have to change for them to come to a place where they would say, I, I need the Lord? And so here's the 
reality of what Jesus is dealing with in his day is kind of the very same thing. You got all these people who think that they're going to heaven, that they're fine with God, that everything's fine, nothing needs to change. They like their religion. They like their life the way that it is. They're pretty set up in so many different ways, financially, influence, culture, etc. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily 100% happy that the Romans are, are occupying their nation, but otherwise, I mean, they're getting along. It is the Pax Romana after all. I mean, it's, it's peaceful, prosperous in, in a lot of ways. And they reject him out of hand. And what happens is because of that lack of faith, they have lost a biblical perspective. They know the Bible. They know the prophecies. They know um, really how to apply it in a lot of ways. And yet, when they look at the reality of what Jesus is coming to do, they're blind. Absolutely, completely blind. In fact, he says what? You have no place in your life for my word. And he is the word of God. He's the word made flesh. He is the exact representation of the glory of God on the earth, and they have no place for it. He says, okay, and back in verse 38, he says, I speak of what I've seen from my father. You do what you have heard from your father. This is where this argument about the heritage comes from. They're saying, we're descended from Abraham. That's our our heritage, that's our lineage, that's our, our ethnicity, that's our religion, is Abraham. We, go, we, we draw back to him. Um, and he says, you're, you're not, nothing like Abraham. You may have the, uh, the covenant of circumcision, and you may have some of those rules and regulations, but you have no faith like Abraham, because Abraham believed God and was receptive and responsive to God in God's leading. Not perfectly. Go back to Genesis chapter 12, if you want to follow along here with where we're going. It says, in Genesis 12, God called Abraham, go from your country and your kindred, so your family, your father's house, go to the land I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. So within that, that's the first time we see Abraham, that's the first time we understand he's this called person, God is building a covenant with him. He's going to make a nation out of him. This is going to be the the Israelites, okay? Um, In that same chapter, chapter 12, we haven't moved off chapter 12 yet. Abraham goes to the land of Canaan, which becomes the land of Israel. Almost immediately, okay, we're in verse 10 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. So he goes to the place God called him to and looks around for 10 minutes, and then he leaves. He goes to Egypt. And he doesn't just go to Egypt. What does he do when he's in Egypt, remember? He says, um, this excessively, radically gorgeous uh, 70-year-old, or I don't know, his wife was not young at that point, Sarah. But she's so beautiful that if people know that she's my wife, they'll kill me and they'll take her. And so tell people that you're my sister, which was true. She was uh, related to him, she, a half-sister. But he lied because he said he, she wasn't his wife. She gets taken and put in the Pharaoh's harem. Kidnapped. 
Okay? Human trafficking, 101, right here. And he's like, yeah, I, I believe God. Not perfectly, not completely, but he, he's trusting God. He misunderstands. And so here's the thing. When you start to see the faith of Abraham, he believes God enough to go to the land of Canaan, but he misunderstands what God's will is, uh, the plan, the process, and all of it, and he begins to just do some really bad things, unfaithful things, un-Christian un things. I mean, just things that you're just like, well, I can't imagine. Why would he do that? And Jesus is saying, listen, the, the step of faith that Abraham took is what made him in this relationship with God. And there are a lot of things that he had to figure out and work out over time. He, um, go back to uh, Genesis chapter 15, and God begins to tell Abraham that he's going to have an heir. He's going to have a descendant. He's going to have people coming from his own body, sons that will have this impact where they're going to become a great nation. And so what happens almost immediately, okay, that was chapter 15. Chapter 16, Abraham listens to his wife, Sarah, who says, hey, I have this young servant, Hagar. Why don't you go ahead and marry her, have children with her, and this will be how God fulfills his promise to you. And he's like, sounds good to me. <laughs> I mean, it's the yes, dear syndrome that's just kind of like, okay. I, I mean, if that'll make you happy, I guess. Um, you have this faith that God's speaking to him. He believes God, but he just doesn't quite understand. So here's the thing that I just want to tell you, is that faith puts you into a relationship with God that gives you the ability to begin to have a biblical perspective. Okay, There are things that are going to prevent you from expanding that perspective as far as it needs to go. Two things in particular that I see in Abraham here. One is a lack of knowledge. He has a lack of knowledge of, of what it is that God is planning. He doesn't know. He's, he's ignorant. And here's the thing that happens when you take that step of faith to believe God and that God has called you and he's, he's uh, invited you into a relationship with himself and wants to change your life, then immediately as a brand new Christian, what you're going to have, even if you've grown up in the church, because what happens is that without the Holy Spirit, even if you've spent 10, 20 years in the church, without the Holy Spirit, there are things you don't know. You've heard it, it's gone in one ear, out the other, and you've forgotten it. Okay? The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and He gives you a grasp of it. Okay, So as you become a new believer and you step into faith, what's going to happen is that you're going to have this, this huge amount of, of material to learn, to understand, to come to grips with. So I believe that uh, God is very gracious and He's very merciful when you sin out of ignorance. It's still sin when you disobey God in the sense of, of not doing the things that He's called you to do because you don't know that you're supposed to. It's still sin, but because it's sin out of ignorance and not out of rebellion, He's very patient and working with you and learning and growing and understanding and coming to these conclusions. But you begin just to read His Word, put yourself in the environments that you need to put, be put into to begin to grasp the things of His Word, Okay? But then the next thing is that'll hinder if you don't begin. If you don't, don't begin to learn because you don't want to be more responsible for the things that God's going to reveal. You've heard, okay, from me many times. 
you are responsible for what you know. Some people, I imagine, nobody's come to me and told me this, um, take that, that idea, I'm more responsible the more I learn, then I'm not going to learn anything. I'm just going to stay ignorant, and then I won't be responsible for those things. Now, probably very few people would actually intentionally do that, but there are many people that subconsciously are doing that. I'm not going to read the Bible, because when I do, God tells me things that I'm now responsible for, and I don't like that. Now you've taken yourself out of the, an area of grace and mercy and put yourself in an area of discipline. God's ready to smack your hand and maybe, maybe smack you over the head. <laughs> grow in your understanding. Grow in your knowledge. And the next thing is understanding. Understanding is a little different than knowledge in the sense of, of this. Uh, Abraham uh, maybe had some areas where he just didn't know exactly what God was doing or, or how God was going to work it out. But instead of inquiring of God, which is what he should have done, he should have gone back to God, he should have prayed, he should have asked God for wisdom, he should have waited patiently for God to give an answer. Instead, with a lack of understanding, he went to bad counsel and he just began to do things. Okay? So understanding uh, builds on knowledge in this way. You begin to go to people with wise counsel, people that you trust, people that uh, have respect in your eyes, people who have knowledge in your eyes, people who've lived it out in your life, and you can see that, and you go to them, you say, here's what I think God's Word is saying, what do you think? And you begin to weigh things and begin to come to a place of understanding, okay? That's one way that understanding happens. Another way that it happens is that you have a growth through experience, right? I've applied these things in my life, and I begin to experience them, so I have a, a longer history, and that history gives me a, a deeper understanding. I have, there's knowledge, and then there's wisdom. There's a basic comprehension, and then there's an application. Um, one of the areas that uh, I'm just going to share as an illustration that this tends to happen in um, is forgiveness. The Bible is not unclear about forgiveness. Is it? I know it's two negatives and all that, but the Bible clearly tells us that if you forgive, you will be forgiven. The Bible tells us that this is, this is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a Christian is forgiveness. But you and I get hurt. Anybody been hurt? Been betrayed, been whatever. And what, one of the things that happens is that we have such a hard time forgiving because we don't feel good about the person that has hurt us. We feel pain. We feel anger. We feel resentment. We feel, and we're like, I don't understand this forgiveness thing. And the forgiveness is this, two things. One, that uh, I go to God and I say, God, I forgive that person. I make a conscious choice, a, a intentional act just go before the Lord and say, I forgive that person for whatever's happened. Now, here's the thing about forgiveness that we oftentimes don't talk about. Even if they don't ask for forgiveness, I still need to forgive them. Jesus said, forgive them from your heart. Not just verbally, but forgive them from your heart. And I think that means that you have to intentionally go to the Lord over and over and over as often as you feel that 
anger and resentment, you have to go to the Lord and say, God, I forgive them. So that's part of it. It's not a feeling. It's not, how, it's not you, you know, becoming really buddy-buddy with somebody that's hurt you. It's a matter of going to the Lord and saying, God, I forgive them. Now, here's the second thing, is that I refuse to bring up that past sin or hurt or pain or whatever it is. I refuse to bring it up again. Many husbands and wives need to hear that. Forgiveness is not just, oh, I forgive you and it's okay, but uh, I'm going to bring it up every time you do the same thing or something similar or as soon as I need to have some manipulative wedge to make you feel the way that I need you to feel so that I can get my way. It's a refusal to ever bring it up again. Here's what God says is that as far as the east is from the west, I have removed your sin from you, which means that God, when he forgives you, he never brings it up again. It's gone and it's done. And so if you forgive somebody, then what you have to do is commit yourself to never beating them over the head with that past sin ever again. That's forgiveness. Now, you learn that through experience. You, you come to that conclusion because you apply it over time and you realize this is how it works. So that understanding begins to grow. Now I have all kinds of understanding because of the history that I have in walking these things out over time. So here's what's going on is that Jesus is beginning to talk to these religious rulers about how this works. You're, you're not acting like Abraham. Abraham didn't do these things. Here's what Abraham did. He had a little mustard seed of faith. He believed God. It was imperfect. He made some mistakes. He didn't understand perfectly. He didn't apply it perfectly. He, he backtracked. He made some progress. And this is this relationship that he had with God. He put himself into a relationship with God and his Biblical perspective began to grow from there. And by the time that God calls him to sacrifice his son Isaac, what does Abraham do immediately? Okay, buddy, let's go. And it's such a bizarre thing because what we know is that Abraham knew that Isaac was the promised son, without a doubt. And when God said, you got to go sacrifice your son on this mountain... Abraham grabbed a knife, grabbed some sticks, grabbed his son, let's go. And he's ready to do it. And what the New Testament says about that is that Abraham believed that regardless of what anything that he did, that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Didn't matter. He was going to believe God, he was going to obey God, he was going to do exactly what God said, and he was going to trust God for the results. That's a huge growth from where he started, isn't it? Going to Canaan for 10 minutes and then going to Egypt immediately. <laughs> and here's what Jesus is saying to us, because I hate to say this, but you know, I'm kind of preaching to the choir. We're, we're, we're religious people of our day. We may be the most religious people in this county. And that's a good thing, in one sense, as long as it is a resulting in a relationship with God, not just a religious system that we believe in. Amen? But he's talking to the religious people of his day, 
the people who should know, and he says, your faith does not resemble Abraham's, it resembles Satan. And here is the particular way that it resembles Satan. Satan knew what the Bible said. He knew who God was. He knew all about God's plan, his goodness, his character, his nature, um, that he existed. I mean, the Bible tells us that faith starts with this, that you must believe that God exists. Does Satan believe that God exists? But it also says something else. You must also believe that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. And seek him is, is submitted to him, love him, honor him, uh, glorify him, uh, exalt him, and submit yourself to him. I'm, honest, I'm honestly, intentionally um, motivated to lift God up and be his person. And what Satan has in one hand is a belief God exists. On the other hand, he says, but I don't want what God offers. And here's what happens for anybody who knows what the Bible says, even understands what it means, but does not want to believe and do what God is calling us to, then that is a departure from faith. It says that, God, I know that your word says this, but I don't care. And I'm going to do what I want to do. And do what you want, I guess. I mean, I've had people say this to me. What, what's God going to do to me? And here's the thing is that God is so patient and gracious. He doesn't condemn you. He could. He could strike you down in a moment. And we kind of have this idea like, oh, if I, you know, how many times have you had somebody tell you, oh, I couldn't go to that church because the building would fall in on me, right? And what we've never seen happen is that somebody's walked into this church and the building has fallen in on them, no matter how sinful or wicked they've ever been in their whole life, because God doesn't do that. He gives you a chance and an opportunity and continues to be gracious and kind and merciful and invites you. And... But here's what's going to happen. There are people who will hear from God's word hear from a message, hear from Christians around them, a Bible study and something on the radio, and they'll say, I hear it, but I don't want it. I want to do what I want to do. And one thing that A.W. Tozer said, it's one of my favorite all-time writers, preachers from the past, he said, there's one thing that God cannot do for you. God cannot believe for you. You have to believe for yourself. You have to have faith for yourself. What Jesus says is that in order to hear from God, you need to be from God. Whoever, whoever and this is verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Putting yourself in that position, being of God, is a... It, it's not a perfect faith. It's not a faith that understands everything. It's not a faith that, that is 
100% radically obedient to everything. It's not a faith that, that understands the, God's plan from beginning to end or answers every question, every, every thought or doubt in your mind and has it all worked out in advance. And then, okay, since I've gotten all these answers, now I'll believe. It's a faith that is very shaky at times and sometimes it's very doubtful at times. Sometimes it's very even disobedient at times. But it's a faith that says, I believe God and I believe that he'll earnestly reward those that, earnest, that seek him right? I'm going to step into that. And it's a, it's a weak faith sometimes, but it's a strong God. And it's a faith that's the size of mustard seed, but it has these, these results that are beyond anything we could expect or imagine or even understand. It's because I'm going to put myself in God's hands and I'm going to trust him with the little bit that I have now. And I'm going to begin to fold into my perspective, his perspective. And all the things that of my past and things I can't quite grasp or even handle, I'm going to begin to have faith that he's going to work it out. He's going to tell me how it's going to work out in the end. So I'm going to believe him for my past. I'm going to believe him for my future. And in the meantime, I'm going to grow in my biblical perspective. So here's how it works. One is you start with faith. It's such a weird word because it's so hard for us to really grasp exactly what it means, but it just means I trust God. I believe him. And so I'm going to put myself in a relationship with him by trusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He is the, the, the sacrifice that paid the price. He is the perfection of God come to the world. He is the Word made flesh. He is God's Son. He is my Savior. I'm going to put myself into a relationship with God through believing in him, and then he's going to begin to work out these other things, but I'm going to intentionally do it in three ways. One is I'm going to build my knowledge. So I'm going to read his word. I'm going to listen to it on the, on the radio. I'm going to begin to study it uh, however I can, but I'm going to get the word of God into my mind. Secondly, I'm going to build my understanding by being with people who understand better than I do in the church, in Bible studies, in relationships, in friendships, in however small groups, whatever I can do. I'm going to begin to build my experience through their experience and through my own history. I'm going to grow in my understanding. And then lastly, I'm going to obey Maybe not perfectly, but I'm going to increase by doing what I know. Do, do, do two things. Do what you know. What do you know the Word of God says that you haven't done? Do that. And see how your faith grows and your, your understanding grows and, and your, your relationship with God is beginning to flourish. Secondly, is there something that God told you in the past that you haven't done yet? You know exactly where you tripped up in your walk with the Lord, probably, is where you can you had lack of faith. You said, yeah, I know God wants me to do this, and he's telling me I should, but I don't want to. And you began to just go your own way instead of his way, and you, you can't get back until you go back. You can't get on his path until you go back to that mile marker where you began to be disobedient. And nobody knows where that is except for you. But you know where it is. You go back to that thing and you say, God, okay, I'm going to do that thing. Perseverance means this. As many times as I fall down and mess up and get it wrong, I'm just going to keep getting up and I'm going to say, God, I'm sorry, help me. Help me to get it right this time. If I have to do that 100 times in a day, I'll do it 100 times in a day. And over the course of a year or 10 years, I'm going to build something which is a, a biblical perspective of life through the character that God has built in me. 
Next week, we'll see how Satan loves to attack the biblical thinking of every Christian. All right? Father, we thank you that you help us. Thank you that you are patient with us. Thank you that you guide and direct us, that you've revealed truth to us, Lord, and you've revealed truth through us. Somehow, you're willing to show the world who you are through your people. Um, Lord, I pray that we would begin again, a new year, living for you, living the way that you want us to, showing the world what it looks like, the best that we can, knowing that we're failing, knowing that we're, we're flawed, knowing that uh, it's going to be an imperfect dash to the finish line, but Lord, we're going to keep running. We're going to keep growing. We're going to keep sharing. We're going to keep doing what we need to do for your glory. And we're praying for your power to fill every step, every word, every action. Lord, would you help us to to grasp really who you are for your glory, Lord, for our sake. We're just going to commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just invite you this this morning to grow in in your biblical perspective, in your um, biblical thinking. Um, I don't know where everybody is. I I refuse to believe that the 9% um, is represented in this church. I believe that we are much farther down the road than that. But I also know that we're not where we could be. So um, in those moments and those issues of, of where you and I have been unwilling or unable to believe God for something, is he calling you out on that? Is he revealing it to you right now? Is he saying, I, I need you, I want you to deal with that issue? If that's the case this morning... It may be just an, an act of, of sacrifice to, to bring that bad thinking to the altar and say, God, I'm done with that. I'm sorry for that. I'm going to change. I'm going to be more like what you want me to be. Amen? Let's stand and sing.